Yesterday, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. It was 3.50 a.m. on Monday, December 8, 1941, at a Longapo Naval Yard on Luzon Island in the Philippines. A motorcycle broke the morning silence as it raced through a Longapo's marine barracks. A U.S. Marine's angry voice yelled out well before dawn, Why don't you get the hell out of here and let us sleep? But the rumbling engine isn't what woke the sleeping servicemen. No, it was Major Frank Pisick shouting, like a 20th century Paul Revere from the motorcycle's sidecar, War is declared! War is declared! Perhaps part of the novelty that early morning was hearing Major Pisick speaking at all. A shorter man with a quick walking pace, Pisick was a 39-year-old career Marine with prominent ears and a penetrating, thoughtful gaze and known for his quiet, retiring disposition. A gong sounded at a longapo, waking those who hadn't heard Major Pisick's voice ringing out through the night and causing one Marine of 1st Battalion to complain, What kind of newfangled revelry is this? He and his companions tumbled from their bunks, still half asleep. The pajama-clad Marines stood in formation. Their executive officer, also in his nightclothes, explained the early morning roll call. Japanese planes have just attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. The United States is at war with Japan. They got us up for that? A Marine complained, unsurprised that war had started. After all, the 4th Marine Regiment had arrived in the Philippines from Shanghai, China, just a week before, in anticipation of hostilities with Japan. Still. Despite the early hour, the 4th Marines, 1st Battalion immediately prepared to leave Alangapo for the Bataan Peninsula, except for the Heavy Weapons Company and certain members, such as Major Pisick, of the Headquarters Company. No, the United States needed those Marines at Alangapo for the time being. This is Left Behind. episode of Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the United States surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm Anastasia Harmon, and each week I tell you the life story of military personnel, civilians, guerrillas, and other individuals captured by Japanese forces in the Philippines. I was inspired to start this podcast by my great-grandfather, Alma Salm, who was imprisoned by the Japanese for 33 months in the Philippines. Alma wrote a memoir of his POW experience, which is where I first learned about Major Frank Pisick and the other POWs Alma was imprisoned with. Curious if I could learn about their lives, I started researching Alma's fellow POWs, and I discovered amazing stories about these men that I had to share with the world. So every week I'm telling you the story of one or two of these heroic POWs. Their before, during, and after the war, if there was even an after. Each episode is a standalone story, but I've ordered them so that put together they will tell the overarching story of World War II in the Philippines. It's a story of more than 90,000 American and Filipino military personnel, as well as civilians, men, women, and even children, who were literally left behind by the United States four months into World War II, and then spent the rest of the war in brutal, inhumane captivity. Sadly, it's a story that is largely unknown, but together you and I are going to change that. The day that this episode first airs, January 30th, 2023, is the 78th anniversary of the Great Raid, when Alma Salm and 511 other POWs were liberated from the Cabanatuan POW camp in the Philippines on January 30th, 1945. For my very first episode, I'm sharing the story of Frank Pisick, 
If I were to make a movie about the entire Philippine POW experience, Paisik would be one of the main characters, as he experienced pretty much the gamut of what all POWs experienced. As soon as I discovered the description of Paisik riding that motorcycle through the Alongapo Navy Yard at night, shouting about the war, I knew I wanted to begin the entire Philippines World War II story with that scene. It's just so perfectly reminiscent of Paul Revere at the beginning of the American Revolution. Truly, Paisik could have been shouting, the Japanese are coming! For indeed, Japan's military power would be felt in the Philippines that very day. And with that, let's dive in. Frank Peter Paisik was born September 27, 1902 in a small southern Minnesota town called Wells. He was the fourth child born to Michael and Anna Paisik, who were Polish and German immigrants. Michael worked as a carpenter, Anna was a homemaker. A teenage Frank worked at a grocery store and graduated from St. Casimir Catholic High School. In the early 1920s, he headed east to the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. Midshipman Zick was quiet, small of stature, always in a hurry, and interested in radios. I have his senior year Annapolis yearbook photo on my website. The link is in the show description. As far as relationships with girls, here's a voice actor reading about Midshipman Zick from his senior year Annapolis yearbook. He combined with savviness an absolute disregard for the gentle sex. But the usual thing happened. He changed from a disinterested outsider to the ranks of the snakes. In just one short second-class Christmas leave, his fondness for radio persisted. However, perhaps due to the fact that radio has become a form of parlor entertainment. I don't totally understand 1920 slang, but I think this means he got a girlfriend for Christmas? Anyway... In June 1926, after graduating with honors from Annapolis, Paisik became a second lieutenant in the U.S. Marines. He spent the next year at various Navy and Marine stations in the U.S., and in June 1927 found himself in Tianjin, more commonly referred to today as Tianjin, in the northeast of China, about two hours southwest of Beijing. After six months in China, he wrote to his sister back in Minnesota. His letter, read by a voice actor, said, When we came here, I thought we'd have lots of trouble and be real soldiers. But so far, it's been just the opposite. We have a large ex-German castle as barracks, the interior of which is entirely finished with marble. We have better accommodations here than we have in the U.S. Adding to their comfort, they lived two blocks from an English country club which Paisik and the other officers were allowed to use. This is an ideal place. Swimming pools, tennis. It's one of those large clubs for which one pays about $100 per month membership dues in the States. I like China. No kidding. Under such circumstances, I'd love that position too. By the way, $100 per month in 1927 is about $1,500 per month today. That's more expensive than Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago, which has yearly dues of $14,000, after the $200,000 initial membership payment. But back to Paisik. As for war, we do not know anything about it except for what we get out of the newspapers. The front is around Nanking and there's no probability of any fighting around here this year. I have given up all hope of seeing any fighting here. Paisik is referring to the Chinese Civil War, which broke out in August 1927 while he was stationed in China. U.S. Marines were stationed at Tianjin, Peking, and Shanghai to protect American citizens during this conflict. That civil war would 20 years later, in 1947, lead to communist takeover of China. About a year after writing this China letter, in October 1928, Paisik learned he would be sent to Japan on a very selective assignment. I do not know how it happened, but I've been selected for what everyone believes the best possible detail in the Marine Corps, and one for which only one officer is selected once every two years. For three and a half years, he would be part of the Naval Attaché's office 
at the American Embassy in Tokyo with only one job, learning to speak Japanese. I will have nothing else to do except learn the language, speaking, reading, and writing to observe and learn everything possible of the customs, traits, and habits of the Japanese. For this reason, I am authorized to travel all over Japan at government expense. I will have to go out among the people all over the country, live with them and like them, that is, become Japanized as far as possible. Soon thereafter, Lieutenant Pysik set sail for Japan. Here are Pysik's first impressions of the country. Everything is so delightfully appealing. Just one week ago this morning, I received my first glimpse of Japan when our ship stopped at Moji for a few hours. I could not go ashore there, but the pictures viewed from the ship were wonderful. Here was truly the land of the rising sun. The next day we arrived at Kobe, and I took a 12-hour train ride to Tokyo in the daytime. The trip was just like taking a whole day off and reading fairy tales, page after page from Wonderland. Although Paisik didn't disembark at Moji on this trip to Tokyo, he would someday return by ship to Moji, under circumstances far from fairy tale like Paisik quartered in a traditional Japanese house with exterior glass sides and interior walls of sliding paper panels. He was enamored with it. After a year of studies in Tokyo, Lieutenant Paisik moved into the Japanese countryside, far from rail lines and tourists, and not even mentioned in guidebooks. He was fortunate enough to engage lodgings that he was particularly excited about. We have the largest bath I have ever seen. It takes up a whole room, just like a swimming pool. It is constantly kept filled by a gushing hot spring right out of the depths of the mountain. So here I expect to stay at least a year. The people are real old Japanese, entirely unchanged by contact with foreigners. They're perfect examples of courtesy. So, besides learning the language, I'll be able to observe and learn a lot about the Japanese customs, the people, and so forth. I have not spoken a word of English since coming here, and do not expect to until I return to Tokyo. I have an old Ford Roadster so I can take weekend trips around Izu Peninsula, where there are hundreds of interesting places to see. Now, don't you think I ought to be satisfied with such a job? The captain said that they would mail me my check every month, and if I cashed it, they would know I was well and on the job. I think that is about as carefree an existence as you can find in the service. People were much more trusting in the 1920s. Or perhaps I listened to too much true crime, because cashing a check doesn't confirm proof of life to me. However, in early 1932, Paisik's carefree time as a Marine ended, and he left Japan to spend the rest of the 1930s assigned to various bases and ships around the United States. Paisik again sailed to China in summer 1939, where he joined the 4th Marines Regiment in Shanghai. He would spend nearly three years there, earning the rank of major and joining the regiment's headquarters company. Then, in November 1941, the 4th Marines Regiment left Shanghai via ship. En route, they discovered their destination, a Longapo Navy Yard about two hours west of Manila on the Philippines' largest island of Luzon. Their task? Assist in preparations for an anticipated invasion by the very country Paisik had, a decade earlier, learned to love, Japan. Major Paisik arrived at Alongapo on either November 30th or December 1st, 1941. The 4th Marines bunked in warehouses converted into barracks. They started training, day and night, in the nearby Bataan Wilds. War, as it turned out, was closer than perhaps expected. On December 8th, 1941, at 3.50 a.m. Philippines time, the Marine barracks at Alongapo Navy Yard received word that Pearl Harbor had been attacked. The United States was at war with Japan. In those early morning hours, Paisik, the officer of the day, climbed into a motorcycle sidecar and spread the news. Mere hours later, Japanese aircraft began bombing airfields across Luzon Island. 
but four days would pass before the Marines remaining at Olongapo actually saw war. Japanese fighter planes began strafing runs over Olongapo at 10.20 a.m. on December 12, 1941. The Marines opened fire on the aircraft, but their efforts did little. I have a picture of Olongapo supposedly taken 35 minutes before the Japanese attacked it. You can find it on my website. 27 Japanese bombers arrived the next morning, attacking the Navy Yard and the nearby city of Olongapo. Tokyo Radio reported that the bombers had wiped out the 4th Marines, but they hadn't. Most of the 4th Regiment had already relocated to the Maravellis military base at the southern tip of Bataan Peninsula, about an hour and a half southeast of Olongapo. By the way, there's a map on my website with all of these locations. Over the next week, the 4th Marines at Olongapo, who were still very much alive and well, prepared to defend the Navy Yard. They set up defensive and blocking positions along beaches and roads near the Yard and the Bataan Peninsula. Then Japanese ground forces landed north of Olongapo on December 22nd. Keeping the Olongapo Navy Yard wasn't possible. The Japanese overran so much of Luzon Island so quickly that General Douglas MacArthur ordered all American military personnel into tactical positions on the Bataan Peninsula. So the Olongapo 4th Marines, except for Major Frank Pisic, moved south to Maravellis. While the Americans on Luzon Island withdrew to Bataan, back in Washington, D.C., civilian Americans gathered on Christmas Eve for the White House Christmas tree lighting ceremony. A Catholic bishop offered this invocation prayer. Lord God, Father of us all, keep us in thy providence as war and Christmas meet in our fatherland. All the material resources with which thou hast blessed our native land we consecrate here to the dread tasks of war. It was dark by 7 p.m. on December 26, 1941, the day after Christmas. The temperature at Olongapo probably dropped into the low 80s, so it would have been warm enough without the raging fire. That fire would have illuminated the retreating form of Major Pisic as he left the Navy Yard that he had just destroyed. Pisic and a detachment of Marines had remained behind at Olongapo, detonating explosives all over the yard, sinking a U.S. ship, and destroying as many submarine parts as could be found. They then doused everything that hadn't been blown up with fuel and set it all on fire an effort to keep weapons, supplies, and more from falling into enemy hands. And then Pisic and the detachment, the Navy Yard burning behind them, headed into the Bataan jungle. Pisic arrived at Maravellis, only to be sent directly to Corregidor Island with the rest of the 4th Marines. About two miles offshore from Maravellis, Corregidor Island was a U.S. military fort at the mouth of Manila Bay. It was tasked with protecting the bay from enemy attacks via sea and air. And there, Frank Pisic stayed for some four months, from late December 1941 to early May 1942, under almost constant bombardment as the Japanese laid siege to the island military base. The assault intensified in early April after U.S. personnel on Bataan surrendered to Japanese forces. Supplies, especially food and water, were running low for the island's more than 10,000 military personnel. The men were hungry, dehydrated, and malnourished. Some of the 4th Marines lost 40 pounds during their time on Corregidor. The 4th Marines took charge of that island's beach defenses, and there, one May morning, they would be the first line of defense against the invading Japanese troops and tanks. Shells were dropping all night, faster than hell. Damage terrific, too much for guys to take. Enemy heavy cross-shelling and bombing. They have got us 
all around and from skies. We may have to give up by noon. They are throwing men and shells at us, and we may not be able to stand it. They bring in the wounded every minute. It is a horrible sight. Noon. That is audio of the last telegraph message sent from Corregidor on the morning of Japan's invasion. It was sent by a 22-year-old army radio operator sporadically during the last hour before surrender. The transmission was picked up in Honolulu. Weeks later, his dots and dashes would be read over radios across the United States, which is what we're listening to here. He captures the horror and sheer emotion of the last moments on Corregidor, because once Japanese ground forces landed, the island fell quickly. The 10,000-plus American and Filipino military personnel on Corregidor were exhausted and starving, having been under siege for four months. Within hours of the initial Japanese landings, American-Filipino surrender was a foregone conclusion. The white flag is up. Everyone is bawling like a baby. So in the afternoon of May 6, 1942, Major Frank P. Pisic became a prisoner of war. Pisic's first act as a POW may have saved the lives of himself and several POWs, including my great-grandfather Al-Masam. Before surrendering, the American Navy and Marine personnel discarded their weapons. Guns, grenades, and more were piled outside the Malinta tunnels. That's a system of huge tunnels built into Malinta Hill on Corregidor Island. The barracks, offices, and other sections of the tunnel system needed to be completely cleared of weapons. And, of course, no one could have personal weapons. So Pisic and the other servicemen complied. Or so they thought. After the firing ceased and American forces had completely surrendered, a Japanese sentry suddenly became vocal with obvious displeasure. He had found a pistol hidden in a tunnel crevice. It was an oversight by the American searchers. But the Japanese sentry was suspicious and angry, and suspicious angry guards can mean punishment or death for the prisoners. Luckily for the POWs, Major Pisic knew Japanese. He kept calm and in his quiet voice explained the situation. It was a mistake, an oversight. We did not hide the gun intentionally. It is not meant for Japanese soldiers. Major Pisic's words pacified the suspicious guard. But the anxious POWs then spent the entire night researching the tunnels to make sure there were no hidden weapons. By early the next morning, they had found pistols, a couple of rifles, ammunition, some machetes and bayonets, and a couple of hand grenades. But now they had a dilemma, as my great-grandfather explained in his memoir, read here by his great-grandson. How were we to get this contraband out of the tunnel and past the guard at the entrance without this coming to his attention? And if it did, God only knows what possible repercussions would happen. It was a real concern because Japanese personnel had already beaten or killed American and Filipino POWs for having Japanese money on their person. The presence of Japanese money meaning that that individual had killed a Japanese soldier then took the money off the body. Weapons in the hands of prisoners, obviously, was not something the Japanese would look favorably upon. So the POWs boxed up the items, carefully handling the grenades separately. Then a small group of POWs distracted the guard by showing him something interesting and talking to him as best they could. Meanwhile, other POWs carried out small boxes of weapons, mingling in with the continual flow of pedestrian traffic in and out of the tunnel. They dumped the boxes in a pile of weapons and debris outside the tunnel entrance. It was still early and dark, so there were no other Japanese sentries around. In late June 1942, the Japanese moved Pisic and the other American Corregidor prisoners to POW camps just outside of Cabanatuan City, about two and a half hours north of Manila. Life in the Cabanatuan prison camp was torturous. Like most men in the camps, Pisic would have suffered starvation, malnourishment, diseases, beatings, and heavy, hard, back-breaking work. 
He served as statistical and personnel officer in the Kabanatuan Camp No. 1 headquarters staff. There was some American military authority and structure, usually by existing military rank, within the POW camp. For example, there was an American camp commander and headquarters staff. Basically, their job was to keep the men of the camp in line, following the rules, and alive. But American leadership were prisoners and had no real authority. They were trying, as it were, to create normalcy amid chaos. In my research, I've come across the American Camp Diary from Cabana Tuan, which appears to be mainly written by Paisik. In total, he spent two years and seven months as a POW at Cabana Tuan. American military forces began returning to the Philippines in late 1944, beginning with bombings and air raids. In response, the Japanese intensified relocation of Allied POWs to work camps on the Japan mainland. On December 13, 1944, Frank Paisik entered the forward hold of the Japanese hellship Oroko Maru in Manila. More than 1,600 POWs were in the ship's three holds as it sailed around the Bataan Peninsula. But the ship wasn't marked. The U.S. Navy planes had no way of knowing what cargo the enemy ship contained when they attacked the Oroko Maru on December 15. Paisik escaped the sinking ship, swam to shore, and found himself in familiar territory. Alongapo Navy Base, once again at Christmas time. He and the other POW survivors spent several days on the base's tennis courts before being transported overland to San Fernando, about 100 miles north. Here, Frank Paisik was loaded onto another hellship, so-called because of the inhumane and uninhabitable conditions POWs endured on the ship. They reached present-day Taiwan on New Year's Day, 1945. The POW spent more than two weeks in that harbor, still aboard a torturous hellship, until that unmarked ship was bombed and sunk by American planes. Paisik survived that second sinking. Paisik and some 900 survivors transferred to the Brazil Maru, which arrived at the port of Moji, Japan on January 29, 1945. He had spent a month and a half on Japanese hellship. He was one of only 550 POWs of the original 1600 who survived the trip. Major Paisik had seen Moji from a distance 13 years earlier on a ship en route to the Tokyo U.S. Embassy. Now he disembarked at Moji, only this time he wasn't part of the diplomatic mission or welcomed warmly by the country's people. No, he was a prisoner bound for a POW camp in Fukuoka City. This camp, which the prisoners called the Pine Tree Camp, was new, the building still under construction. Arriving in midwinter, the POWs endured the winter weather in small, unheated barracks where they slept on sand. As an officer, Paisik's work in this camp would have included gardening and hauling human waste. Officers were treating it somewhat better than enlisted men. Within months, however, American bombings of Japan soon forced yet another prisoner move. On April 25, 1945, Major Paisik and about 140 other prisoners left the Pine Tree Camp and were ferried to Korea. A train ride across the Korean Peninsula brought them to the Jinsen POW camp near present-day Seoul, Korea. Life at the Jensen camp was probably the best Major Paisik experience during his nearly three and a half years as a POW. Morale seems to have been better here than at other camps, and the Japanese official governing this camp was even later described as kind by former POWs. Prisoners worked pulling rickshaws and paving roads. As the war turned against the Japanese and the end neared, the Japanese guards looked more and more despondent. Camp security became less strict. One day, the officer-ranked prisoners at Jensen Camp, perhaps including Major Paisik, were brought to the Japanese camp commandant, who told them the war was over. He offered them sake to celebrate, quote, no hard feelings. And soon American forces arrived to liberate the camp. 
By September 9, 1945, Frank Pysak and all the other Jensen POWs had boarded American evacuation ships and were headed, once again, for the Philippines. And this time, Pysak and his fellow POWs were not crammed into the ship's hold. Frank Pysak then flew from Manila to Honolulu, Hawaii, arriving there on September 27, 1945. After three years and four months in captivity, and more than six years away from the United States, Frank Pysak was once again a free man on American soil. It was also his 42nd birthday. Frank Pysak's life after World War II has been less forthcoming. He spent several months recuperating at the Veterans Hospital in Oakland, California. In early January 1946, he purchased a car and returned home to Minnesota on leave. While driving home on January 4, 1946, he hit a patch of ice on a hill in Minnesota, lost control of his car, and hit another car head-on. Pysak was wedged so tightly in the wrecked car that it took officers at the scene more than an hour to free him. He was hospitalized with severe back injuries. The three passengers of the other car were hurt as well, but all considered in fair condition. By July 1946, he had achieved the rank of colonel and was working at headquarters at the San Diego, California Marine Base. He then retired from the Marine Corps in December of that year. In total, he served as a U.S. Marine for 20 years, spending at least 10 and a half of those years in the Asia-Pacific area. He returned home to Wells, Minnesota, and lived with his widowed mother and unmarried sister until the mid-1950s. In October 1955, 53-year-old Frank married Mamie Eleonora Bolstad, a widow from Wells. Frank and Mamie did not have children, either together or separately, as far as I can discover. At some point, the couple moved to Pebble Beach near Monterey, California. Mamie died there in 1975. Frank followed two years later on December 31, 1977. He was 75 years old. It seems a quiet finale to Pysak's extremely heroic life, a life with a tumultuous middle that started with his announcement that Japan attacked the United States. I'll be back next week with Japan's initial attacks on the Philippines. This is Left Behind. listening. If you want to see pictures of Frank Pysak and other parts of his story, visit this episode's website. You'll find the link in the show description. You'll also find a list of sources I've used. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help others find this podcast so I can continue sharing these amazing stories. Left Behind is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Tyler Harmon does additional editing work. Dramatizations are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken with dialogue. I'll be back next week with the first bombs dropped on the Philippines and a seven-decade quest for redemption. I'll see you then.